Morning, Christchurch. <clears throat> Welcome to Christchurch in the second Sunday of Advent. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Malachi chapter 3. Before we jump into that, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. Through our uh, turning to your word, teaches us by your word. Lord, we pray that we would be ready and willing to hear what you would have to teach us this morning. It's in your precious and holy son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Like I said, turn to Malachi chapter 3 this morning. We're going to just be looking at verses 1 to 4. Behold, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Spirit, again, we ask that you would... Be present as we look at the word, uh, the word of God. It's in Jesus' name. So again, on this second Sunday of Advent, we turn to the Old Testament. We turn again to a prophet. And just as a, a quick reminder, prophets are different. There are different type of writing. They're a different genre of scripture. And so we kind of approach them differently. They're not like Paul writes in the New Testament. He sits down, he writes a letter, probably takes him the afternoon. The prophets are collected works. They're collected works, meaning the the entirety of their ministry is condensed down into a a book or a, a collection of writings, right? Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and, and Isaiah are what we call the major prophets. And they're major really only because of their length. They're not more important than the minor prophets, which are the final 12 books of the Old Testament. They're just just longer. Most likely the reason for this is that their ministry is longer. For most of them, at least. Jeremiah's ministry was almost his entire life. And so if if you take a preacher's work for 40 or 50 years, it's going to end up being a little bit lengthy. Whereas somebody like Malachi, his ministry doesn't last nearly as long. He doesn't have as much, he doesn't have as much to say over that long of a period of time, so he only he only ends up with four chapters. Now it's still a collection of works, it's still a collection of messages, messages. Uh, but that's it's just largely shorter and more 
concise. In order to understand what Malachi is talking about, I think we have to understand the grand scheme of the Old Testament and how God how God had interjected himself into human history from really the very beginning. And this might get boring for some of you because I say it a lot, but that's all right. You can be bored for a minute. So if we go back to Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything. In the beginning, God creates the heaven and the earth. And we've got Genesis 2. There's a little bit different descriptions, ordered differently, different purposes and things like that. And then Genesis 3 comes along, and Adam and Eve, they sin against God. Now, a lot of times when we read that passage, when we read the when we read the, the fall in Genesis chapter 3, we ask the question, why is it that God punishes Adam and Eve so severely for eating a fruit? The, the reason why Adam and Eve are punished so severely is not because they ate a fruit. It's because what they were doing when they ate the fruit. Now, Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is, is, highly, is highly symbolic. There's a lot of things going on when, in Genesis chapter 1 when, when our author is talking about water and how God pushes back water. He's not just talking about water, he's talking about the, the image of water, which is, which is chaos. And in Genesis chapter 3, when God says to, to Adam and Eve, you can have everything in the garden except for this one tree, the fruit of this one tree, he names it, he names it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when he names it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what he's saying symbolically is that, is that I as God, not me, but God saying this, I, as God, have the only right to decide what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. You don't. And so in Adam and Eve, and really what we do today, when we reach out and, and grab the fruit, we're saying we want to be God. That's what, that's what Satan says, the serpent says. You won't surely die. You will just become like God. And that you'll get to decide what's right and what's wrong. This is the sin of the garden. And because God is a holy God, because God is a, is a righteous God, He cannot stand in the presence of sin. And so there has to be a separation. So Adam and Eve, they're kicked out of the garden. Kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, uh, an angel or a cherubim, he stands at the, at the, the entrance to the garden and blocks people from being able to enter in because man cannot live forever and eat of the, free, the, the, the tree of, of life and all sorts of things. But what happens between Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 7, Genesis chapter 7 being kind of the beginning of the story of the flood, is that God in, is completely away from his creation. <clears throat> because of the sin of Adam and Eve and then the corruption that that sin leads to, God is completely distant. From his creation. And I think one of the reasons why God is completely distant from his creation is not, not only because he's holy and righteous, which he is, but also to show us what happens when God is completely distant. Brother sins against brother. Adam and Eve, they sin against God. And then sin corrupts brother and brother relationship. Cain kills Abel. And then family turns against family. We see that in, in the lineage that follows in Genesis 
5, and ending with Lamech, who's killing probably a child. And then he defends himself, like, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. And then we get to the verse that I quote all the time, Genesis 6, 5, where there's the corruption of everything. It builds, right? From the, from the sin against Sin against God, to the sin against brother, to the sin against family, to the sin against civilization. Sin corrupts all things when unchecked by God. Every intention of the thought of man is only evil continually. Full corruption. And then God acts. Now you're going to hear me say something that if you stop listening isn't going to be true. Okay? I want you to keep listening to me so that you understand what I'm going to say next. God acts, and he does something that doesn't work. Right? He interjects himself with an event. That's all God does with the flood. God sends the flood. He calls Noah, and he says, You're the only righteous man left on earth. Build me an ark. I'm going to destroy the earth. And that's God's one act. He sends a flood and he wipes the slate. As if to say, and this is something that we do, this is something that we logically say. Why doesn't God just punish wickedness? That would solve it. But it doesn't. It doesn't solve it. And I think, by the way, just so to clarify this, I think God does this to prove to us that just punishing sin doesn't solve the problem. There's something else. It's not, it's not just that we sin. It's that we are corrupted by sin. So God, he wipes the slate clean. And immediately after he wipes the slate clean, he sends the flood. He protects the, the, the very creation that he made. <clears throat> Noah gets off, of the, he gets off of the ark. He builds a vineyard. He makes some wine. He gets plastered drunk. He then does something very strange. And if you remember back three years ago when we went through Genesis chapters 1 through 11, my suggestion is is that there's some sexual deviance that happens between Ham, Noah's son, and Ham's wife. The text is strange and it's vague and it doesn't come out and say it, but something weird goes on. And then Noah, he curses Ham's son instead of cursing his son. And, and all sorts of weird things happen. All of this to prove to us that sin still exists. God wipes wipes all things out. And yet, the brokenness of the heart is still there. And this is why I then say, well, God did something that didn't work. Now, obviously, God didn't intend for that to be the end. Again, I think God's trying to show us something. The eradication of sin is not the problem. It needs to, something else needs to happen. And so what we have from Genesis chapter 9, which is the end of the flood until Genesis 12, we have another cycle. Sin corrupts not just family, not just a sin against God, but it corrupts brother to brother, family to family, civilization to civilization, and sin again, not quite to the same extent as before in Genesis 6 but corrupts all things. We get the fall of Babylon. Babel. Babylon later. 
at this tower. They build this tower to try to reach to the gods and be something special. And God says, eh, that's not going to work. Confounds the languages, sends people away. Sin corrupts. And so God does something new. He does something different. He interjects himself again. But this time he, does, he doesn't just create an event. He doesn't just send the flood to start over again. He does something different. He calls a family. But he doesn't just call Abraham just to call Abraham. He calls Abraham to do something bigger on earth than just find a particular family that maybe will continue to listen to him. He calls Abraham, he calls Isaac, he calls Jacob, he calls the 12 sons. He puts them in Egypt for 400 years so they can grow under what's kind of a protection of a big, powerful nation into this big, powerful nation. And then God wins a war without lifting a single finger. And he brings the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He takes him to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, God gives him, God gives Moses at this point, the leader of the Israelites, he gives him the law. Now, the purpose of the law was not to be the event like the flood. The purpose of the law was to give the example of what it was supposed to look like to be righteous. And once again, God does something that doesn't work. Once again, I'll repeat myself because I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm trying to say. I think he does it on purpose to show us that it's not just about having an example. The heart still needs to change. Something else still needs to happen for us to be not just saved, but fixed. God sends this example. And he calls the people to, to follow after it. To live in accordance with it. For it to define every single aspect of their life. Government. Society, morality, health, everything is defined by this law. And what happens immediately after it? Brother sins against brother, family sins against family, corruption all the way to the book of Judges. Where we get a very clear picture, it says in the conclusion of the book of Judges, which, you know, you always want the conclusion of a book to be something nice, positive. And Judges said, nah. It says there was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What immediately precedes that statement is the slaughter of one of the tribes of Israel. Is the brutal murder of a concubine. She's cut into 12 pieces and sent to the tribes of Israel. And all of you going, oh, that's nice. That law seemed to work. But then God does something different. He sets the stage for something different. Like he set the stage by calling Abraham to set forth the law. He sets the stage by calling a king for somebody future to come. He sets David up. Well, first he sets Saul up to prove Another point, you can ask for what you want. You can get a big, strong, tall, mighty king in Saul, but he's not going to, if he's not after me, he's not going to lead you right. And then God brings David into the picture, and he creates this covenant between him and David. And he says, from, from you, one of your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And, and how did that work for Israel? Poorly. 
is the answer to that question. The kings of Israel are largely some of the reason why, most of the reason why the people of Israel fail so much. We see in the book of Judges before the kings come that Israel is, is wicked and God sends a king to get their attention, a foreign nation to get their attention with the Philistines, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Malachites. Amalekites. But once the kings come, then, then something else happens. David, largely, he defeats most of the enemies, the small fish enemies that we had, they had in Judges. But then Israel becomes its own enemy. They split into two nations, and then Assyria comes. Assyria is one of those nations that, that conquered the entire world. Nations like Persia and Rome and Greece, and Egypt. Assyria is buried in there also. Assyria comes, they conquer the people of Israel because the people of Israel had turned away from God. God sends Assyria not to punish the people of Israel, not entirely, but to draw their attention back to him. And this happens for a little while with the southern kingdom Judah. Judah kind of turns their attention back to God and they start to serve and worship God again. And so for a little bit of time, they manage and then their kings fail again. And so here comes now Babylon. Babylon conquers Assyria, conquers the rest of the world, comes and conquers Judah because the people of Israel are sinning against God and not worshiping him. And so instead of punishing the people of Israel, he gets their attention. He tries to turn their attention back to him. And this happens while the people of Judah are in Babylon. And then the people of Israel, they come home. They come home under the guidance of people like Zechariah and Ezra and Nehemiah. And they rebuild a wall around Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. But it's really kind of pathetic in comparison to the old temple. And people are crying because it's not as nice. And for a little while, the people of Israel, they follow God. They look at the law as the example that they're supposed to follow in You guessed it. They failed. Now last week when we looked at Jeremiah, Jeremiah, he's talking to the people of Judah before the fall of Babylon, before the defeat, uh, before the, the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple by Babylon. Malachi, he's, he's a little bit further down the road. Jeremiah, he's, he's about 580, 590, 600 BC. Jeremiah, or Malachi here, he's about 400. It's about 100 years after Israel has come back to the land of Egypt and has built their city back up, built their temple back up, and started worshiping their God again. And you know what's happening? We're starting to get into that rut again. Look at, look at the verse right before our text in chapter 2, verse 17. It says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you said, the people of Israel, you said, How have we wearied him? By saying, ready for this? Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Anybody think that sounds right? Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Huh. So here's, what, here's what's happening. The people of Israel, they know their history. They know that whenever Assyria comes to conquer Israel and, and Babylon comes to conquer Judah, which is the southern, northern and southern kingdom, 
what God was saying through the prophets is that the reason why this is happening is because you have been sinning against me, worshiping false gods. You have been neglecting the poor and the widows. You have done nothing that I've called you to do. And so you will be both punished and I will use that punishment to bring you back to me. Now you know what's happening in the land of Israel. They're worshiping the Baals. They're not following after God. They're disregarding the orphans and the widows. They're not helping people. There's no, there's no love left. But you know what's interesting? is that God has not come and told them that they're going to be destroyed. And so, logically, right? Logically, they say, we must be okay. God must not care anymore. After all, if the things we were doing, if they were so bad, he would punish us. That's what he did in the past. That's, that's what he did in the past. Does it? Doesn't that make sense? Everybody? If you don't think it makes sense, just examine your own life. I guarantee you at some point in your life you've made this argument. I got away with that. There's no consequences to that. I must not be that bad. Where is the God of justice, right? Where is he? If he's, if he's this good and righteous, where is he at? I told you last week that the prophets, they're, they're very, they're difficult at times because as we, as we read the prophets, it's, it's, we got, you got to really pay attention. Got to really pay attention to who they're talking to, why they're talking, when, when. So this is the, this is the mindset that is starting to become prevalent in the, in the land of Israel. It doesn't matter what we're doing because, by the way, this is the same thing that was said in the, in the New Testament people of God said, oh, well, God's not punishing us for our sinfulness, and so therefore, man, it must not be a problem. We can do whatever we want, right? Christ died for me, right? That's what he did. He died for me to do whatever I want. Let me answer that question for you like the New Testament does. It's not, what, it's not what happened. It's not what he's doing. See, Malachi, again, he's, he's speaking to these people about 400 years before Jesus comes. There's going to be a period of silence from really Malachi till John the Baptist comes. And during that time, the people of Israel are going to have a really, they really got to figure things out. They got to wrestle with who their God is and what it means to follow him and what it means for him to be for him to bless them and all they got to figure all this stuff out and they kind of got to do it all by themselves. But what Malachi does here is he he actually does one of the one of the few times in this verse he's not speaking to the people he's actually speaking to. Right, I said last week that the prophets they're either speaking to the people they're talking to, you're going to be punished because you're sinning. Or the next generation. Meaning, okay, punishment has happened. Now God is going to react. Now God is going to do something else. That's what Jeremiah was talking about last week. I'm not done with you. It was a picture of hope. 
Malachi, he's not talking to the people, not in this verse, not talking to the people now. He's not talking to the next generation. He's talking to the people a little bit further down the road. Hindsight's 2020, about 400 years later. And he says, he says, look, God is about to do something new. What does sin do unchecked by God? Sin corrupts. It turns brother against brother, family against family, civilization against civilization, unchecked by God. Sin corrupts everything. God showed us that just wiping out all the bad people doesn't fix it. Our hearts are still broken. Just showing us the picture of what it looks like to be righteous doesn't change our hearts. And we still sin against God. So God says, I'm going to do something different. And this time, it's the real thing. It's exciting, right? There's two major things that happen in the church calendar. Right? We just spent a year in the liturgical calendar. Two major things that happened. Two things that we really fixate our attention upon. Christmas, which is what we're in now, and Easter. Let me say it in, two, in a different way. The incarnation of God, Christmas, and his saving work on the cross and in resurrection. The saving work on the cross and in his resurrection is why we are here. It is the it's a foundation, it's the starting point, it colors everything else, and it is absolutely worthy of our, of our attention. Every single day of our lives, every single minute of our days, we can fixate our attention upon the fact that we, as broken and sinful and disgusting people, have been saved by a holy and righteous God because He sent His Son to die for us. Amen. But something else is true about Scripture. That message is wonderful. But it's not the message of the incarnation of God. Sometimes we misrepresent what Christmas is really exci- what, what, why Christmas is really so exciting. Because we go, Jesus came so that he could eventually die. He came so that he could eventually die. But he also came to do something else. Something that's really awesome. Right? I've been talking about it the last couple of weeks. God, Genesis 1, heaven and earth, and they were together. The Venn diagram was a circle, not two circles, separated like it is now. When Christ comes incarnate, when he becomes man and enters himself back into his own creation, he brings those two spheres that were separated, he brings them back together, and he gives us something new. He starts to change our hearts. He doesn't just wipe away sin. That will happen at the end. He doesn't just give us a picture to follow. Yes, His life and ministry is wonderful. and It's a wonderful example. It, but it's the same as the law. He came to change our hearts. And that's what we get in this passage. He says, Behold, I am sending... My messenger, and he will prepare the way for me before me. Now, again, the prophets are hard. We've got to pay attention. Imagine driving up to the Rocky Mountains, or, or the Appalachian Mountains are a little harder to do it because they're longer. They're not so abrupt. If you're 100 miles away from the Rocky Mountains, you can see the Rocky Mountains in the distance. 
But you can't differentiate the mountains that are there. That's what is happening in the prophets. They're looking out into the future and they see this beautiful picture, this beautiful mountain range, but they don't realize that there's actually two mountains that they're looking at. They can see the top of this mountain in the back and they can see the front. That's, that's largely what happens with the prophets. Jeremiah, he's talking about something that's going to happen to the next generation of people. But what we don't, what he doesn't know is that behind that picture is a picture of Jesus coming in his incarnation. And it's also a picture after that of Jesus coming at his final return when he will set all things right. Isaiah, when, when Isaiah says the Prince of Peace, the wonderful counselor, this kind of stuff, that's what's happening. It's this picture of, of a mountain range. But as we get closer and closer to it, we start to differentiate the parts and the pieces. Malachi, he, he, he's like, look, a messenger is coming. And you can kind of you can kind of see, almost seems like it's blurred. The messenger and the message are almost the same person. They're not. We're closer. We see it better. John the Baptist, he's going to come. He's going to prepare the way. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. Now, I don't think that when, when Malachi writes this, he means Jesus in the temple overturning the tables. But that's what I picture. Do you think anybody in the room when Jesus starts to throw down was prepared for that? No, because they would have stopped it beforehand. Jesus comes in and suddenly he flips the tables and everything. Whoa! That's Jesus literally, physically in the temple. Suddenly come to the temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, Hanei, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Hmm. Again, Lord of hosts is a military term. Lord of the armies. Lord of power. Lord of might. When you have been completely and totally defeated again and again and again, you start to wonder if God is actually that powerful. And so God tries to emphasize this. I'm sending a messenger. I'm sending a message. I'm sending, in fact, my son. It's not something passive. And then verse 2, he says, but who who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? I don't think we emphasize this reality very much. You ever think about this for a minute? You ever think about just how crazy unworthy we are to stand in the presence of a pure and holy God? I do. I did this week. It's devastating. It's devastating to think how pathetic I am. Sometimes we misrepresent what it means for for God to be distant from us. Oh, God can't be in the presence of sin. He just doesn't want to be with us. He's just, he just, no, God is being merciful to us. Because the presence of God in something that's not perfect and pure and holy 
it can't stand. God can stand in the presence of sin. Sin can't stand in the presence of God. And that's what we are. Is sin. And Christ is going to... And all us Christians are all, yeah, I can't wait. But we should really be kind of terrified. Peter tells us in the New Testament... In, in, in first in second Peter chapter three, we were studying this week. He says, God is God is patiently waiting for us. Because when he comes, and all of us who are who are not saved by the blood of his son will be will be crushed. They will be crushed at his presence. He's patiently waiting so that so that all might find salvation. Now here's what here's what Malachi does a little different. He calls on something else. He says he says, "Well, wait, okay. So so brace yourselves for his coming. For he is like a refiner's fire in the like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a refiner in a purifier of silver." And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings of in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. As in the days of old and as in former years. And this immediately should call our attention to what Paul says in the book of Romans. Be living sacrifices. Be pleasing acts of Worship to God. Be an offering to Him. It's your life and your ministry. But, but has God done anything to change the heart? It says that, that this message, this, this, this being, He's gonna, He's gonna be a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He's gonna be the, Refiner and purifier of silver and gold. Anybody ever, anybody ever refine gold? Didn't think so. Last year I made a, a poor excuse for a mug for my brother for Christmas. I made a foundry and I melted aluminum. Aluminum's easy to melt. It's, it melts at a lower temperature. But aluminum, like you would get really anywhere, in in anywhere, isn't pure. It's got, it's got blemishes and things like that. And that's what happens. You find gold and silver in the earth. You pull it out. It's not really pure gold or silver. There might be some gold and silver in there, but you've got to get rid of all the other stuff because it's only the gold and the silver that's precious. This is white gold, my wedding band. If it was pure white gold, I'd be able to squeeze it and crush it. Gold is malleable. It's soft. And so we add these other things. To make gold pure, you have to burn it. You ready for this spectacular picture? You take gold, which has all its impurities, all its imperfections, all its, let's call them brokennesses. That's not right. And you put it into a crucible, a thing to hold the metal once it's melted, and you put it onto heat. And in our society today, with all our technology, 
you can find gold and you can put it into a machine and it's got all the heat temperatures and all this kind of stuff. It's going gonna, it's gonna to purify it way better, more amazing, and it's going to do it without any human interaction. But that's not what the Old Testament was like. In the Old Testament, it was about the work of the refiner. And you would take that. And I, I did this with aluminum, and I, I think it's about the same. You take it and you melt it. And it melts down. And two things happen. There's two impurities. There's impurities that will burn off. Smoke will turn from a metal to a vapor to a, a solid to a liquid to a vapor, and they will go away. And then there are things that melt at a higher temperature than the actual metal that you're melting. And those things come up to the surface. It's called slag. And you take a little thing and you, and you scoop it out and you move it away. And you know what happens after a while? As you continue to remove those impurities... The metal changes. If I look at my ring right now, right? Ten years on my finger, it's all scuffed up and, and grody. And it, I can see my reflection in there. I can see that I'm wearing a blue shirt. And then I have a head. That's it. When you refine metal to its pure state, the refiner's job was to sit and to watch it. You know how they knew when it was refined, it reflected perfectly. This is what God says the messenger is going to do. He's going to come and he is going to not just send an event. He's going to send a flood and get rid of sin. He's not going to just give us an image to follow after, even though the image of Christ is a great one to follow after. But he is going to send the refiner purifier of our hearts and our souls. Jesus, he goes, he lives his life, he sends us, he, he goes to the cross, he dies on the cross, he pays the debt, he, he, he rescues us, he puts us in the presence of God, completely and totally blemished. You are not saved after you have become purified, you are saved before you become purified, and then Christ says, I'm going to send a, a helper. And the Spirit of God comes and dwells in our hearts. You know what the Spirit of God does? Refines. Purifies us. You can't stand in the presence of God. You can't do it. And you can't, in your own willpower, clean your life up. But the Spirit of God dwells in you and is doing it to you. And sits and refines us. And watches us. Until one day, he will look into it and he will see a perfect reflection of God incarnate. Amen? Do you know what else is really kind of hard to think about? If we would personify gold, we would make it, we would hypothetically give it the ability to talk to us, right? To describe what it would be like to go through the refiner's fire. Do you think that the words that they would use would be pleasant? This was fun. I enjoyed it. Or do we realize that fire is not pleasant to stand in? Anybody ever have a you know, grill, grill out and making some burgers? 
and you, you're flipping the burgers, and you you know you do you flip the burgers. You got the ones in the back, like, ah, 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 and you pull your hand back because that's because that's at about 400, 500 degrees of heat on your hand. Aluminum melts at 1,200 degrees. Fire is not pleasant. The refining process is not something that we will necessarily enjoy. Sometimes it will hurt. It it will sometimes cause us pain. And sometimes what will happen is that it will naturally, as, as we simply are in the presence of God, naturally those those. Those impurities will burn off on their own. Sometimes God will have to reach in and he'll take that that, uh, slag off the top and he'll remove a big chunk of our impurity. But the process of refinement, the process that we go through of what we call sanctification isn't a fun one. But I bet you if we would ask that same sentient gold, if the end product was worth the time and the effort and the work and the pain, I'm going to guess that they would say yes. Have you ever seen a piece of gold that's even just 24 carat? It's new and it's shiny. It's pretty amazing to look at. There's a reason why for all of human history we've called gold a precious metal. Because it's worth it. Now can you imagine? One day in paradise in the presence of God. Being that pure, refined, beautiful reflection of Christ. I'm not going to ask you the question. I'm just going to give you the answer. It will have been worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your spirit to dwell in our hearts, to change to refine, to transform us so that we would no longer have broken hearts stained and corrupted by sin but that through the work of transformation in our lives we will steadily and continually be drawn and refined and purified to look like your son. Lord God, we just pray that we would that we would embrace what that means. That we would go through the struggle knowing that at the end, at its completion, the purified image that we have become will be worth the toil that we have gone through to get there. Father, we thank you and we praise you. We praise you for your son who died on the cross 
who gave his blood to justify us in the presence, in your presence. And we thank you for your spirit who continues to do this work. And we pray this in his precious and holy name.